Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Today, my guest is Dr. Neil Thies. Dr. Thies is a liver pathologist, and today on the show, we'll talk about his work on the canal of herring, liver stem cells, and his research work on the interstitium and some of the implications of that work. And then we'll go on to talk about complexity theory, the self-organizing universe, and even Zen Buddhism, and we'll show how all of this relates back to pathology. Then after the show, stay tuned for a preview of my episode with Dr. Patrick Hansma. But right now, here's Dr. Neil Thies. So you're a liver pathologist, and yeah. I'd like to know, how did you become interested in liver pathology as a specialty? Um, <laughs> well, it was totally haphazard. Um, okay. I was actually thinking of doing renal pathology. And, um, but my third year of residency, uh, in my second year of residency, I was offered to go to London to the Royal Free Hospital for six months to study liver with Peter Scheuer, okay. um, who was one of the great um, foundational liver pathologists and of his generation. And I thought, I really don't care much about liver, but I'll study anything if I get to go to London for six months. Um, it turned out that the reason they were sending me, I didn't learn until I came back. So this was to go abroad in my third year. When I came back at the end of my third year, as a fourth year resident, the liver pathologist up at Columbia was taking a sabbatical. And, and none of the attendings wanted to look at the liver biopsies. <laughs> so okay. They had taught me to learn how to do it. So in my fourth year, I was actually the liver pathologist for Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center which was terrifying, but awfully good training. Yeah, I bet. The thing was that when I got to London, you know, I figured, okay, I'll go study liver and then come back and do kidney. But what I learned both from Jay Lefkowitz, my mentor at Columbia, and his mentor and now mine, Peter Scheuer in London, is that the liver pathology community was very small and amazingly wonderful. They all knew uh -huh. each other. They were all long-term friends. And they were all charming, charismatic, interesting people, all of whom got along. Um, there was really no strife in that community. Competition was low. They all felt like they were part of this team. And that was a lovely thing to be exposed to. And so I was like, oh, I want to be one of those people. So I became one. Okay. It, it seems like in a lot, uh, many of the pathologists that I've talked to so far, that's kind of, that's not uncommon that the, the path to where they are wasn't where they expected to be originally. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have a conversation with medical students and residents all the time where they come in thinking, oh, I want to do that. Uh -huh. And I say, well, you may end up doing that. But in all likelihood, somewhere in your journey, either in medical school or within pathology, you're going to meet someone who you think, oh, I want to be that person. And you find a model and what they're interested in becomes your interest. Um, it doesn't always happen that way, but I think it's fairly common and it's the, the most exciting way for it to happen because it's always kind of great when the universe hands you something you weren't expecting and it turns out to be a good thing. <laughs> you know, there's excitement. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's more often influenced by who you meet than what your idea of yourself is. Okay. And you mentioned Dr. Scheuer, Dr. Lefkowitz, and I know you've also mentioned Dr. Thung as uh, a mentor as well. Is oh, that, yeah. Was it sort of the personality in the, in the community that they, they showed you? That the, is that what drew you there? Yeah, very much so, very much so. So I came back and Jay was on sabbatical and I was doing the liver biopsies and obviously I needed guidance, not infrequently. And Dr. Fung, Swan, was the um, the other major liver pathologist in New York. Hans Popper was still alive, but he, but he was older and, and I didn't have easy access to him. So Jay had made a point of me having the opportunity to put with him at a scope once. But Swan was the person I could go to. And so we got to know each other through that. And the following year after my residency, just synchronicities, 
in my favor, she was being allowed to have a liver pathology fellow for the first time, a liver transplant pathology. Mm -hmm. And so I went, I was her first uh, pathology fellow, but I'd already been working with her for a year. So, and then I stayed there as an attending for the first few years of my career working with her. So, yeah, um, Peter referred to himself as my professional father, and Swan <laughs> still refers to her as my professional mother, and that she actually has three sons, not just two. Um, and I don't think it's with those, uh, those labels. Okay. So one of your most well-known achievements in the field of liver pathology, you uh, you helped in redefining the microanatomy of the canal of herring. Yeah. All right. The, <laughs> this is something I, I, I mean, I've, I've seen the term before, but I don't know a lot about it. So can we kind of go through that process, how that, how that happened? Sure. So, um, <laughs> so people still like, what's the canal of herring? <laughs> Medical students hear about it. Um, now maybe they're actually seeing pictures of it, perhaps, in histology. We know that hepatocytes produce bile, which goes into the hepatocyte canaliculi, the little space between hepatocytes, um, and travels opposite to the blood flow on the other side of the hepatocyte towards the bile duct. But how does the bile get from the hepatocytes into the bile duct? So this guy named um, Ewald Herring, who was a German anatomist in the 18, mid-18th century, mid to late 18th century, did dye ex injection studies where he would inject dye into the venous supply and then could show that the dye came out the bile. And through these experiments in a, in a bunch of different animals, he was able to infer that there was a link between the hepatocyte canaliculi and the biliary tree. He did not see this in microscopic section, but he could infer that it was there, and he drew pictures of it as what he imagined it would look like. And what he imagined was that there was a tiny, the tiniest bile duct of all, with the smallest cholangiocyte, would meet the hepatocyte canaliculi at the edge of the stroma of the portal tract. And that little canal or channel became known as the canal of herring. Mm -hmm. His drawings sort of formed the basis for the way people imagined it. There are no pictures of the canals of herring um, up through my work, except for electron microscopy by Erwin Arias and Hans Popper at Mount Sinai in New York, where they showed exactly that. But the thing is, these are tiny structures, and to see anything by electron microscopy, you know you have to go, you're at extremely high power, so you have to sort of look where you're thinking something will be in order to see it. And so they looked where they thought to see it, and they saw such a structure. And so there's a picture in their classic textbook of the of the liver of the canal of herring, and it looks just like that. Okay. Now, years go by, and in the late 70s, Dr. Thung and her mentor, then at Mount Sinai, Michael Gerber, were the first to actually apply immunostaining to the liver. And they looked at immunostains with five different antibodies for different structures. And one of those was against keratin. And when they did that, they saw that the bile ducts uh, were highlighted, the hepatocytes were negative. And then there were these tiny little cells away from the portal tract little dots um, that are sort of a minor thing. And when I was, and no one really knew what those were. And when I was Juan's fellow, I saw these. When you did uh, an A1A3 stain, which is a combination of antibodies that stains biliary or cholangiocyte type mm -hmm. keratin, that you saw these dots. And I asked what's uh, Swan, what they were, and she said, "Well, you see those. No one knows what they are, but um, Dr. Popper used to wave his hand and just say, oh, those are stem cells.' But this was at a time when no one believed, very few people believed the liver had stem cells. Though Michael Gerber was probably its most ardent advocate. Um, certainly, I think he was the only pathologist paying attention to that possibility um, at the time. So this is into the '80s. Okay." But most experimental biologists, some believed there were stem cells and some believed there weren't stem cells. And every experiment that anybody did, 
you could interpret the data to support one side or the other. It's like, is light a wave or a particle? Depending on what you're, how you examined it, you could interpret it the other direction. Mm, okay. um, in the mid-90s, Gerber did a study of thinking this could be a way of identifying stem cells in the liver, that he looked at antigen staining by immuno in fetal human liver and discovered that keratin-19, that co-staining of both hepatocyte and cholangiocyte markers were seen in fetal hepatoblasts. And as the liver develops, they segregate into the biliary tree and the hepatocyte. But there are some cells that maintain both phenotypes in the ductal plate. Okay. And he published that work in 95, I think, 94, um, and suggested, and he has a picture, that of these small cholangiocytes, and says that perhaps if these can be demonstrated to co-localize both sets of markers, that would indicate these were stem cells. So there he actually said these are stem cells. So my question was, well, even if they are stem cells, how are they going to get from the hepatic parenchyma? Because they're scattered out around the hepatocyte, near the portal tract, but not at the portal tract. Mm -hmm. They're either going to move and digest their way through, but that sounds like cancer, which made no sense, or there's a pre-existing structure that they could crawl along. And my thought was the canal of herring would be such a structure. So I asked Swan and I asked Jay and I asked Peter for pictures of the canals of herring, and there were none other than that one, which wasn't very helpful by EM because it was so high power. Right. I wanted to see how that structure related to these cells. So finally, I thought, you know, the only way I'm going to get a canal of herring in a slide is if I cut enough serial sections, I'm going to get a perfect section of a canal of herring just by chance. So I got a normal liver biopsy and sectioned, I think it was 26 levels I got out of the biopsy. And I looked at it and I couldn't find any canals of herring. You know, there were like 10 or 12 portal tracts in this. So we're talking about a lot of portal tracts. And I couldn't find anything I was sure was a canal of herring. Okay. And then I took pictures of a single portal tract, tracing it all the way through, just thinking, this is the only way to make sure I'm not missing something. And when I looked at those photographs in sequence, I saw that slide after slide, these little tiny cells were lining up with each other into these strings of cells. They weren't isolated at all. And if I followed them far enough, they eventually hit the portal tract, entered the portal tract, becoming a ductule, the, you know, a tiny tubular structure, and those in turn entered the bile and then I realized, oh, these cells were cross-sections of the canals of herring. And herring was wrong. They don't stop at the limiting plate, the edge of the stroma of the portal tract. They extend through the portal tract stroma out into the liver parenchyma as much as a third of the way towards the central vein. Okay. And so, new anatomy. Right. But Michael Gerber had said he thought these were stem cells. So we looked at a case of fulminant failure from a Tylenol overdose. I got this tissue from Romil Saxena, who then was at, had been in London all, also, but at King's Hospital, where she worked with Bernard Portman, another giant of the prior generation of liver pathology. She got me this specimen, and I did serial sections, and we showed that all the regenerating hepatocytes in this acute Tylenol injury were budding off of the canal of herring, again doing three-dimensional reconstruction. And this was not computers. This was me making photomicrographs, printing them out, tracing the structures onto acetates, filling, stacking them, and then filling them in with colored magic markers, depending on where they connected with others on different levels. So wow. this was, yeah, this was, uh, it took a work. lot. It was a lot of work, but we showed it. And this paper, got on the cover of hepatology it was the last cover of hepatology of the millennium showing that in human livers the canal of herring looks like this and that it is comprised of stem cells and the reason uh, you know the, the and it explained why all the prior animal data could be explained in both directions so it had explanatory power and from that point on basically um it was recognized that livers have stem cells 
it's still debated what role those stem cells play precisely. I think it's different than in other organs, but that's a whole other set. Sure, sure. Can we go into like what would be some applications of of using liver stem cells? Like I was thinking, you know, instead of the you know, you've got liver transplant, could you instead instead of transplanting a portion of liver, could you transplant just the stem cells? What would like would something like that work? Yeah, so you know, I would advise you not to raise that question. <laughs> we were talking about this 20 years ago and have we gotten anywhere? No. Okay. Um, because the politics of stem cells and the cost of stem cells, uh, it's the field has not advanced. I mean, you'll notice 20 years ago, stem cells were like the big thing. It was in the newspaper all the time. Yeah. How many cell treatments do we have now from all that work? Mm, zero. So it gets into the politics of stuff. And, uh, okay. and it's 20 years old and hasn't changed. So I'd say let's move along. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> Back in 2018, you co-authored a paper on the interstitium, uh -huh. and uh, this re resulted in quite a bit of publicity for you. I know there was a New York Times article and a few other things. So let's let's talk about the interstitium. So what is it, and uh, how did you come to work in this particular area? So, uh, you know, I think before I go into the details, I, I would just highlight uh, that actually... So the canal of herring was my first new anatomy. Uh -huh. uh, the interstitium was my fourth new bit of anatomy. There are two other things out there. Oh, okay. Um, and how is it that I keep discovering new bits of anatomy? You'd think we'd know what anatomy is by now, right? Right. But pathologists, you know, one of the things that, that sort of frustrates me with my field and my colleagues myself included, is how you often hear pathologists say things like, well, I'm not a real scientist, but dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. And and scientists, I mean, this was when I was doing, got involved in the stem cell world, I was very frequently dissed, very significantly, sometimes on national television, as just being a pathologist, not a real scientist. So how could I have anything to say about stem cells, which is a real science thing? Um, we talk about cell biology and we talk about molecular biology, and those are real sciences. But the way bodies work at the tissue level, how molecules organize themselves up into cells, cells organize themselves up into tissue. And things, there are many things that can't be seen at lower levels of scale. So you can't look at a cell and say it's a stem cell. You have a cell in a tissue, and you see how it's behaving in that tissue, how it's proliferating, what cells it's relation it has relationships with. Mm -hmm. That's what tells you it's a stem cell. That's at the tissue level. There is no graduate program in tissue biology in the world. The only people who are trained to look at tissue-level biological findings are diagnostic anatomic pathologists. Right. And we're not looking at animals. We're looking at human tissue. We are, in fact, scientists. We are tissue biologists. And every day we have normal and experimental, <laughs> you know, experiments by nature, diseases passing in front of us under the microscope. What an extraordinary privilege that is. And if you pay attention to what's in front of you on the slide, inevitably, while you're looking to do your clinical diagnostic work, which is very pragmatic, but you order a special stain and for that tumor, but then you notice something in the non-tumoral liver or kidney or lung or whatever, and you see something that you don't expect. So it might be an immunostained tiny cell away from the portal tract in the middle of the hepatocyte. What is that? It's not a contaminant, it's not an aberration, it's not an accident. If you find something in the human body, it has meaning. The question is whether you bother to track it down. Why I was so obsessive about those cells, I don't really know. I look back and I go, <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> so, but the question had lodged in my brain about what are they? I had, to, I had to find this answer. And so I did. So when you see something that isn't in your textbook, if a resident, I tell residents all, this, all, residents all the time, 
if you see something when you're previewing your slide and you take it to your attendant and you ask them, what is that? And they say, oh, something like, oh, you see that sometimes it's not important. That's a whole academic career right there because they don't know what it is and they've waved you away and there's nothing trivial in biology. So if you see something that no one has an explanation for, that's your path. Mm. And that's happened to me four times. So the way it happened with the interstitia, it often comes about because you're having to look at tissue in a different way, either because you have a new technique. So like the immunostains that Michael Gerber and Swan Fung first applied to the liver revealed this thing that hadn't been seen before, these little cells. Right. For the interstitium, my endoscopy colleagues, this is when I was at Beth Israel Hospital in New York, and I was actually not in the pathology department. I was hired by the Department of Medicine to be in the GI division, to be their liver pathologist, so that, and be on site in their office suite, a building over from the pathology department, for training their GI, clinical GI fellows. So I had my own office up there in the GI suite. And I had a multi-headed scope room in the GI suite. It was very luxurious. Okay. And um, two of my colleagues, Petros Benyev and David Carlock. David was the chief of the GI division. And Petros was a new attending um, in the GI division, had trained with us, and um, was now an attending there. Okay. And they had this fancy new endoscope that if you put it inside patients, um, you could actually and inject a fluorescent dye in their vein. The fluorescent dye would go through the circulation and into interstitial spaces between cells. And it was a confocal laser endomicroscope. So at the tip of the endoscope, they had this special confocal fluorescent microscope that could see 70 microns into the tissue. So seven thousandths of a millimeter. Mm -hmm. So just as top surface. And you could see the histology, but in living tissue. And in the esophagus, stomach, small intestine, large intestine, you saw exactly what you expected to see. And what they were hoping is that they could do histology and diagnosis of disease in with live microscopy so they wouldn't have to do biopsy. Basically. <laughs> so they wanted to steal our business. Yeah, put us all out of, out of business. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And theoretically, they could, except that None of them are trained to analyze tissues the way we are, so they can't do it. <laughs> We're still in business because it requires the kind of expertise we spend years developing. But meanwhile, they put the scope in the pancreatic duct and the bile duct, and they saw something that they didn't expect to see, um, which are these big fluid-filled spaces separated by these dark bars. So they came to me and said, what is that? And I said, oh, those are capillaries. And they said, no, 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 those black bars if they were capillaries, they would be bright, and the spaces between them would be dark. These are large, fluorescent-filled spaces separated by these dark things. And I was like, there's nothing like that in the bile duct wall. And so we looked at anatomy books, uh, histology books. I've got a little bit of a collection of them, old ones. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nothing looked like this. So then we looked at tissue sections. We just, you know, I went and got bile duct specimens from transplants and from, from Whipple resection, nothing that looked like this. We knew that the distance was taking them into the submucosa because the bile duct wall is very thin. There's a layer of epithelial cells, and then basically you're immediately in the submucosa. There's basically no lamina propria and no muscularis mucosae. And when you look at the slide, it's just dense connective tissue. Um, and it has these little cracks in it because dense connective tissue, whenever you cut it, you know, either a cryostat or a, a microtome when it's fixed, it's stiff. And so it cracks. So you have these little artifacts. But there's nothing like these big fluid-filled spaces. So we wound up, you know, I knew that we needed to get as close to the living tissue as possible because the scope was seeing it in living tissue. So we had patients who were undergoing Whipple um, for pancreatic cancer. And they would put them under anesthesia for the operation. You know, they all signed consent for this. They would have fluorescent dye injected into their vein. And within a few minutes, it spread through the body. They would then scope them using this in vivo microscope and see in the bile duct, there's the, the fluid-filled spaces. And then they would do the Whipple resection and bring it down to the frozen section room. 
And we would open it up and use the scope again to look at the tissue. And sure enough, the fluorescent dye was still there. And you could still see that. It's called a reticular pattern. You could still see the reticular pattern. Then we took a biopsy of that and did a frozen section of it, put it on a chuck in OCT, froze it, put the scope on it again. The reticular pattern is still there. And then did frozen sections down as far into the level where the scope would be looking, 70 microns. Mm -hmm. And when we put that on a slide, it turned out that the submucosa, these cracks that we saw that we thought were artifacts, were actually remnants of these collapsed spaces that exist in the living tissue. And that the densely layered collagen that we see on routine slides is actually the supporting network of collagen bundles that are about 10 to 20 microns across. It's sort of like a latticework that holds the space open, and this fluid flows through there. Okay. So the living tissue anatomy, microanatomy, looked nothing like what we have thought the real was. What we thought was real was artifact of dehydration, the fluid draining out of these spaces, the collagen bubbles collapsing on each other, and then getting fixed. What we thought was real, this dense wall of collagen, turns out to, in the real, is actually this fluid-filled space. Okay. Then, because I'm a diagnostic pathologist and I was doing general pathology at Beth Israel, I would see colons and stomachs and skins, etc. And it turned out, basically, that everywhere you see dense connective tissue in the body, it is not. That's artifact. It's actually this fluid-filled space. And then through a variety of things, we figured out it's not lymphatic. It's not a blood-filled sinus. It's the interstitial space, which by definition is pre-lymphatic. It's where the lymph comes from. And it's a scale of interstitial space that's orders of magnitude bigger than the interstitial spaces that had previously been recognized. You can actually see it on a grossing bench. If you get a colon specimen, and you look at the submucosa and you tug it apart slightly, you see these tiny little fibers and you think you're tearing the tissue. It's not. You're actually seeing the collagen bundles that create this space. Okay. And so that's how that happened. A new technique showed us something we hadn't seen before. And then we could go, oh, that's weird and move on. Or we could become obsessive uh -huh. and figure out what is this new thing we haven't seen before. Okay. And, uh, you know, the, the nutshell is the interstitium goes from being this tiny space, either very, very, very tiny, almost nanoscopic between cells, or the pericapillary space, about 10 microns, through which nutrients and waste products are exchanged between cells and the capillary system. But then there's this third, much larger space, as large as, you know, a third of a millimeter sometimes. And that volume, interstitial fluid volume of the body is 20% of the human body. Oh. So it's a huge organ-like system. What made news is that we said we think this could be classified as an organ, and then, you know, people went crazier. Right. Okay, so like, like you were saying, it because I, I, I read the paper, and you it's the interstitium then is throughout the body but it's it's connected throughout the body is that did i read that right well this was this was the one of the questions i mean it seems like it's connected through the body but could it possibly be isolated pockets so that the liver's interstitium is separate from the colon's interstitium is separate from okay. the heart there are clinical intuitions particularly from osteopaths um, from people working in fascia that say that this is a contiguous space, but how do you prove that? And we actually presented data on that, and it's now in revision. I'm confident it will be published in Communications Biology, one of nature's open source journals, like our first paper was in Scientific Reports, which is also a nature open source. What we're showing is that, in fact, the spaces are continuous, so it's a potential signaling path throughout the human body. In the initial paper, we speculate that could be the case, but now in this new paper, Odyssey Sinai, one of our junior attendings at, at NYU, um, it's his project, he's first author on the paper, shows that it's likely to be, in fact, continuing. Um, and that opens up all sorts of interesting possibilities for 
you know, how does the body communicate with itself across distances normally? Um, how do disruptions happen in disease? It's presumably uh, an alternate pathway for tumor spread. And in the paper, we show how discontinuous metastases of melanoma in the dermis. Like, how does the tumor get from its primary site centimeters away in the dermis when there's, you know, by digesting its way through the dermis? No, it's getting into the spaces of the dermal interstitium and traveling through them. Discontinuous metastatic implants of colon cancer in the mesentery. Um, in this paper, we're showing how tumor cells actually go through the continuous interstitium from the submucosa through interstitial spaces in the muscularis propria down through the serosa into the mesenteric fascia. And so those are all continuous for example. Okay. Um, so well, you, you said that yeah. the, the interstitium is pre-lymph. Pre so then yeah. this sort of cancer metastasis, uh, is that different then from lymphoid spread? Would that be a, classified as a different thing if, it's, if that turns out to be how, how it works? Well, I, I think that probably, so tumor can get into the lymphatic system and thereby get to lymph right. How does it get into the lymphatic? It can digest its way into a lymphangiole, the smallest lymphatics, or even a larger lymphatic, and go directly into the lymphatic system that way. Or it can also get into the interstitial space, which is continuous with the lymphatic, not by digestion, but just by traveling through the space into the lymphatics. And we know macrophages do that. That's in our first paper, which mm -hmm. you read. We show how pigment, tattoo pigment in tattooed colons that are resected, and they tattoo where the malignant polyp was. Right. And we can see the pigment in macrophages under the microscope when we get the colon resection. And the only place that that pigment goes is also the lymph nodes in macrophages. So we know that there is a continuity of the space through which macrophages can travel because they're not eating through tissue. That would make them cancer. Right. <laughs> they're just traveling through the pre-existing submucosal interstitium into lymphatics to the lymph node. Now, one of the ways we show the continuity is what I said was wrong, that the only place you see pigment is in the lymph node. I went back and I looked at those original slides and I didn't bother to go to high power initially because I was focused on the macrophages. But it turns out there's all sorts of little particles that aren't picked up by macrophages. And when you look closely, you can see them traveling down through the interstitial spaces of the muscularis propria, down further into the mesenteric fascia. And it's the tiniest particles that go. So part of the project, this was one of our residents, one of our senior residents, Doug Allison, actually counted the relative sizes of particles in tattoo specimens when you go from submucosa muscularis propria to the mesenteric fascia. And it's the tiniest particles that travel furthest. So there seems to be an implication of mechanical flow, by presumably by peristalsis compressing these spaces. So there's fluid movement. And the tiniest particles, not picked up by macrophages, get the furthest. So both of those, you know, the lymphatic spread by tumor, or pigment-laden cells, um, or the pigment itself, it can get into lymphatics through the natural channel of interstitium into the lymphatics, or it could theoretically, a malignancy, could digest into the lymphatics. But then there's also capillary spread, mm -hmm. venous spread, arterial spread. There's perineural spread, but none of those explain distant vets in the dermis from melanoma. None of those explain mesenteric mets from the colon. And this has been one of the puzzles of things like that. So now we have, an, and the, the other thing I would add is in this continuity paper, we also look at the fibrous sheath around nerves, the perineurium. And it turns out that also has interstitial spaces in it, like every fiber connected tissue in the body. And so probably perineural spread is tumor spreading through the interstitial spaces of the organ, let's say the prostate, which we now show in this paper are continuous with the spaces of the perineurium. Mm. So it doesn't have to 
digest to get into a nerve and track along a nerve, there's a pre-existing space to travel. Along. I see. Yeah. One of the other things I was thinking of, and you, it's kind of mentioned as a little cliffhanger at the end of the first paper, the, uh-huh. the use of interstitial fluid as a, for, for diagnostic purposes. I mean, we hear about the yeah. liquid biopsy all the time these days. Can yeah. interstitial fluid be used in, in, a, in a similar way? Yeah, we think so. It already is. Think about glucose sensors on the skin. Mm. Um, they are measuring glucose within interstitial fluid. The thing is, the people who designed them simply knew if we go deep down, we can get it. But they didn't know the nature of the space the sensor is sitting in. So we now provide that. But yes, you can sample it. It's not easy to sample um, because it's very rich in hyaluronic acid and other proteoglycan. And so it's kind of like a gel. And yet it has this fast-moving fluid because the fluorescein that you inject through the in vivo microscopy, within a couple of minutes, it's throughout the interstitial space. So it's this interesting thing where you seem to have this thick gel through which this fast-moving watery fluid flows. Okay. Getting at that watery fluid, which is carrying the small molecules, this would be a metabolomic study, is something we're working on. And we've got some preliminary data where we can inject a little bubble of fluid like a time test. And in fact, a time test for tuberculosis, when they bubble up your skin, they're putting it in the dermis and expanding your dermal interstitial space. That's why you get that bubble. But you could then theoretically put fluid in and then draw it back. Oh, It's hard to get back because it gets the, the needle will get filled with collagen fibers and hyaluronic acid, kind of gloopy. But you can get some fluid back, and we've done some prote- uh, metabolomics data on it, and you do get interesting findings of the small molecules traveling through there. Um, so that's a whole area of research we want to get involved in, and for sure there's going to be diagnostic potential here by sampling interstitial spaces throughout the model, probably by that kind of mechanism, I think. Okay, okay. That, that sounds yeah. very interesting. Now, you've done some work with complexity theory, and it it, it seems like yeah. the, the work you've did with, with stem cells kind of led you to that. All right, yeah. So can yeah. complexity theory be applied to, well, all right, how, how did you get involved in compl- complexity theory? And then can that be applied to pathology? Yes. <laughs> in three minutes or less, right? <laughs> <laughs> you may need a part two. But the nutshell okay. So the, these little cells that turned out to be the canal of herring led me to liver stem cells, led me, but the, that theory of liver stem cells didn't explain all the animal data, so we looked outside the liver and discovered that the bone marrow had stem cells for the liver. And so that actually became, the canal of herring paper was December 99, cover of hepatology. Bone marrow to liver was January 1st, 2000. So the Y2K moment, I got both covers of hepatology on either side of it um, with bone marrow to liver. And then six months later in July, we were the first people to show in humans bone marrow to another organ, again, liver, cover of hepatology. So I got three covers in seven months. I was very excited. (laughs) So I'd always wanted to have a cover, and now I had three. Do Do you have those framed on your wall somewhere? Of course. But the thing is that, so I was part of the crowd showing adult stem cell plasticity. Um, If you remember 20 years ago, if you're old enough, you probably are. No, I am. um, There was this, okay, there was this huge argument about embryonic stem cells, adult Mm -hmm. stem cells, and I was part of that crowd. And the paper that showed that adult cells can actually do everything embryonic stem cells could do with my group. This was working with Diane Krause at Yale where we showed in mice, in a paper in Cell, May 2001, that bone marrow stem cells could uh, become any cell in the body, basically. And we could prove that clonally by transplanting one single cell. And that paper was actually the paper that led to George Bush's address to the nation about embryonic stem cells. Oh, really? Um, later on. Wow. Yeah. So that's why I don't want to go into that. I mean, you know, <laughs> if you ask me questions about why aren't we using stem cells and what can we use them for, we uncork that. But a friend of mine in England who was a at the University of Westminster 
and was interested academically in how scientists talk to artists and vice versa, got a grant for a friend of his who he always wanted me to meet named Jane Prophet. She's an artist, and she had been designed an interactive world online called Technosphere, where people could create little creatures, send them out into the world of Technosphere, and they would receive little messages back from their creatures. And she was interested in how people were relating to virtual creatures. And 20 years ago, this was a new thing, mm -hmm. you know? And so many people sent creatures into Technosphere that eventually the creatures interacting with each other started creating social organization within themselves that they had not programmed. And so she became aware of self-organizing systems, otherwise known as complex systems. And when we got together, the idea was I tell her my science, she tells me her art, and we see if anything happens. And all those conversations were recorded for the Wellcome Trust, which was interested in interdisciplinary communication. And so she noticed how maybe cells in the body are behaving like her little creatures in technosphere, that the way they interact with each other leads to self-organization that gives rise to organs, tissues, body, and can explain things about health, can explain things about disease. And we were, aside from the immune system, no one had really talked about human biology in terms of complex systems theory, and we were amongst the first to publish on that. So that was a huge leap, but clearly came directly out of what's that cell? Oh, it's the canal of herring, dot, 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 dot. And now I'm talking with this artist about biology and complex systems. And I suppose that's a cliffhanger for a second interview. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Because where we go from there gets really crazy, and I know you like that stuff too. I do, I do actually. I do want to touch on a little bit about it. So you, you just mentioned self-organizing systems. Uh -huh. I've seen there are many uh, YouTube videos of you talking about self, the self-organizing universe. Is that, yeah. that sounds like that's sort of an expansion of the self-organizing system uh, idea. Yeah, yeah. So the idea of self-organizing systems is if they fulfill certain criteria, they will organize themselves into large-scale structures that look like they were planned by someone but aren't. So the way ant colonies make food lines, have cemeteries, have refuse dumps. There's no ant in the colony saying where those things should be and how they should be structured. It arises out of the behavior. You look at people walking down the street. How does the traffic flow organize itself? There's no one standing above going, you walk here, you walk there. And yet you get this organized traffic down a sidewalk. That applies to all levels of scale. And so when Jane... So when she introduced me to them, we were talking about ant colonies, introducing me to the topic and how ant colonies are self-organizing systems arising from the interactions of ants. Um, a colony from a distance looks like a solid object, or a murmuration of starlings in the sky looks like a shape. But when you look closer, you realize it's not that at all. It's a bunch of ants, or it's a bunch of birds. When you go to the ant's body closer up at the microscopic level, the ant itself disappears into a community of cells. And so that's the kind of scale jump that pathologists practice all the time. You're sitting at your microscope looking at the colleague or resident who's sitting at the other side of the microscope, and you're in the everyday scale, and here are two people. And we're solid, and we talk to each other, and we have boundaries in our skin. But then you gaze into the microscope, and you're seeing that same human tissue and occasionally, I've gotten biopsied, so sometimes I've looked at my own tissue, and there I'm not a solid object. I'm a community of cells that are arranging themselves and interacting in a certain way, the way ants do, or the way humans do social. So I go from the everyday scale down to the microscopic scale. Very few people do that in the course of a day. The other thing that comes to mind is people who fly, airplane pilots. Mm -hmm. They're going from the everyday scale and then going up. And all of us have that experience when you're landing from a flight. There's this moment where you are over the world looking out your window. And then suddenly, and everything looks very small down there, down there. And then suddenly there's this moment of transition where you're suddenly back in the world as you're about to land. So pilots do this all the time. Pathologists do this all the time. Almost no one else does. And I think that's that training, in part, made me able to see this. So ants 
Ant colonies are a thing, except when you go to a lower level of scale, it's just self-organizing smaller things, ants. The ants themselves, when you go down to a smaller level, they're just self-organizing cells. So Western medicine and Western biology is the state basically based on cell doctrine, that all living things are made of cells which derive from other cells. So are cells an inherent existent thing? Well, no. When you go down to the nanoscopic scale, they're just biomolecules self-organizing in water. Mm -hmm. And when you go down to a smaller level of scale, those molecules are self-organizing atoms, which are just self-organizing subatomic particles, which are just self-organizing smaller subatomic particles. Where are those smallest things come from? People debate what they are. That's what string theory is. Are they little strings, vibrating strings? But physicists, there is consensus that it's not smaller and smaller the farther down you go. There is a smallest length. This is where now we're getting into quantum theory. And that smallest length called the Planck length is where things just come and go out of the energy-filled vacuum. And because the vacuum isn't empty, but it's filled with energy, and Einstein equals mc squared. Some of that energy becomes little tiny strings or particles or whatever the smallest things are. And when they meet each other, they interact to become larger subatomic particles into bigger subatomic particles, into atoms, into molecules, into the universe. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, the entire universe is a self-organizing system. And there is no solid thing anywhere that has inherent nature as a thing. Whether something appears to be a thing or a phenomenon depends on the level of scale at which you're observing it. And so from the Canal of Herring, <laughs> we wind up at this grand sort of philosophical, mystical view of what's the nature of reality. Uh-huh. Okay. And that gets us into my Zen Buddhist practice, right. a fundamental principle of which this is a quote from um, and this might be a good thing to end on okay that uh shinryu suzuki who was the a japanese zen teacher who founded san francisco zen center he's famous for having said in the mind of the beginner there are many possibilities in the mind of the expert there are few zen practice zen contemplative practice is the training to see everything fresh in the moment without precondition of what you thought it was or what you expect it to be. Diagnostic pathology is the same thing. When you look at the slide, you have to look at it completely fresh. In liver biopsies, we actually don't even look at the clinical history first. We see what's there on the slide, just there, without expectation, without assumption. And out of that arises our diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So pathology is a contemplative practice, too, which people, you know, we spend hours at, of, of each day sitting at a microscope, absolutely still, nothing moving but some fingers and your eyeball. This is deep contemplative practice. And if you pay attention to it in that fashion, you will see things. And if you see things that you don't expect, don't ignore them. It's the same lesson. Okay. That's the so-called beginner's mind, right? Beginner's mind. Right. So, yeah. And um, I think that training in pathology is a very rich practice in beginner's mind. Now apply it to the world, not just what's in your microscope. And things open up. So, to me, you know, I never expected all of these things to mingle. Certainly when I was looking at carried in 19 positive cells near a portal tract, I did not expect it to line up and connect in some fashion, either into a canal of herring, which is a stem cell niche, or into a link to my Zen Buddhist practice. Right. <laughs> but they did. Because my eyes were open and I was paying attention. That's a great lesson right there. And you're right, this is a good point to end on. So I, Dr. Dr. Neil Thies, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Great big thanks to Dr. Thies. This one was really interesting for me and it was fun that we could relate all those things together. You can find links to all of the things we talked about in the episode today in the show notes. That's at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. And also I need to thank Dr. Rafat Manan who introduced me to Dr. Thies. You might remember Dr. Manan who along with Dr. Emilio Madrigal are the creators of PathCast. And in fact, I'm going to be back on PathCast on October 30th 
So just like in the episode today, everything is connected. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path. And if you like this episode, make sure you share it with someone you know. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. And now here's a preview of my next episode with forensic pathologist, Dr. Patrick Hansma. I, I was going to ask you how you decided on to, to specialize in forensic pathology, but it sounds like you, you had that down uh, when, you, when you were in high school already, right? Yeah, it did. You know, I knew I wanted to do autopsies and it was becoming uh, immediately clear that to do autopsies consistently, that meant forensic pathology. You know, I learned uh -huh. very, very quickly that the hospital autopsy was kind of a dying species and has yeah. largely fallen by the wayside. And in my current practice, I do both. Um, but by and away, the forensic autopsies are the, the dominant portion of my practice. I had read on a pathologist's website that they thought Deaners had great character potential for fiction writing. And so I kind of took hold of that because I was working as a Deaner and I thought, well, I've got inside input on this. So when I had mm. to do some writing in college, I, I cranked out a short story about a Deaner who was also a grave robber. And the there was no supernatural component to that story. Um, okay. That was just, you know, this, this guy who was living this double life you know, working in a hospital pathology lab, and then at night he was out in body trafficking. And it was um, kind of this, it was almost like gang rivalry between these groups of grave robbers. And so that was that story, and that is embedded within the novel now. For more from Dr. Hansma, tune in next week on the People of Pathology podcast.